Well, if you turn in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 6, we're going to continue our study in the book of Mark this morning. And I'm just going to let you know ahead of time here that we're going to only do the first 13 verses. And you're all going, shh, because usually when Pastor Chris is up there, you know it's going to go forever. So 13 verses is still going to go forever. Because these 13 verses are packed with doctrine and theology and application. And we're going to get all three of them. So please fasten your seatbelts on this morning as we go through these. And I'm just kidding. It won't take forever. Okay? So Mark uh, chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown. And his disciples followed him. Now where is there. Well, remember the last two chapters where we've been studying, the last place Jesus was was Capernaum. I don't say it as well as Pastor Michael. I, I say the quick and easy way. It's Capernaum. And that's where Jesus was. It was about somewhere between 20 and 30 miles away from Nazareth. And so now Jesus is going to come back to his hometown of Nazareth. And this is actually the second time that Jesus has returned to his hometown. The first time he came, his disciples weren't with him. That's one of the ways that we know it's not a parallel account. It's a different time. And it was probably about one year before this. So as you keep your finger in Mark, to set the stage for this whole study, why don't you look back at Luke as well, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. And we'll look a little bit at this first visit that Jesus had. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. It says, and Jesus returned to Galilee. Where did he return from? It was the time of temptation in the wilderness. And notice what it says next here. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. That's what took place as he finished that time of temptation. He came in the power of the Holy Spirit. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogue and was praised by all. Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Now, this is really interesting just as a side note here. Think about this. The book of Isaiah was handed to him. He didn't have this pre-planned. It was handed to him. The book of Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Verse 20, and he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You could imagine after what he just read. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now what was he saying? He was saying, what you just read, that is speaking of me. He is saying, I am that promised Messiah. That was not a message that Jesus had been preaching all over yet. People did not know. Oftentimes he already had done a miracle. He said, don't tell anybody. But right here in his hometown, he says, I'm reading this scripture to tell you right this very moment that I am he who was written in this book. And at first, verse 22, it says, all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? 
And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And so we see in the story that at first he was well received, but then they began to question his authority. They began to say, well, wait, wait, wait. We know this guy. Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the son of the carpenter? Then if you read the story a little bit more, he'll see that, that he warned them about the rejection of the prophets. And then they started to get angry. And if you follow the story, you'll see that they got so angry that they tried to kill him. They took him out of the city and they were going to throw him off the cliff. Boy, people are fickle, aren't they? Man. Well, when you read this, it makes you wonder, why would Jesus even return to Nazareth after that happened? And I think we should put ourselves in his place. I wonder what Jesus was thinking on that journey to Nazareth. Again, it wasn't a real, real long journey, but they probably took the majority of one day and maybe two days to get there. And what was Jesus thinking during that time as he was going to return again to a place that wanted to kill him a year before. And I imagine in his heart, this was his hometown, I imagine he desperately wanted people to believe in him and to accept him as the Messiah. After all, he'd already told them who he was. I'm sure that he wanted them to recognize that the kingdom of God was at hand and that they would need to repent and turn toward God. Even though they had rejected him a year earlier, Jesus was giving them a second chance. Well, back in Mark, back in Mark, verse 2 in Mark 6. It says, When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Now, I want you to put a note here. Mark a note in your Bible right here. This verse tells us that these people knew three things about Jesus. Number one, you can see they knew that he spoke with great authority. He spoke with great authority. Number two, that he had great wisdom. And number three, that he performed miracles. Now, we don't know what Jesus was teaching on this particular occasion. We knew the last one. We don't know this time what he was teaching, but it was obvious to these people that the knowledge and authority had, it was undeniable to them. They knew it. The power to perform miracles as well had been given to him. Remember that Jesus had just completed a time of ministry in which a demoniac had been delivered, many healings had taken place, and a little girl was actually raised from the dead. Now remember back in Luke what we read? It was interesting. It said, in his first visit, Jesus has said that they would want to see him doing the same things that he had done in Capernaum. Interesting. Now look, they didn't have iPhones, they didn't have Instagram or Facebook back then, but somehow the word had come pretty quickly, probably through the caravans that traveled through from Capernaum into Nazareth. They knew what Jesus had been doing. Now by the way, Contrary to what any movies may speculate about, and I'm not against movies, but whatever they may speculate about, this proves something to us, that, that Jesus was not this extraordinary child growing up, that he didn't go around doing miracles as he was young. And, you know, if he had done any of those things, wouldn't they have already recognized that? And wouldn't they have a different attitude towards him than they did? 
Here's what they did know, and they spoke this out. Isn't he the carpenter's son? They knew he had no formal education. Now, that was kind of strange for a rabbi even to be teaching when he had no formal education. Most of the rabbis, virtually all of them, had been trained under another rabbi. They knew he didn't have that. They knew he was a carpenter. He grew up in his father's footsteps, and he was a regular human being that had what? He had brothers and sisters. Their thinking is summed up if you look at verse 3. It says, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Now, a couple of interesting things to note here. This time, you'll notice that they said the son of Mary, not Joseph. The first time they had said the son of Joseph. Why did they do that? Well, most likely it was derogatory because a, uh, an adult male was always referred to as the son of his father. Now, are they being derogatory and implicating that they didn't believe that Jesus, you know, really was the son of Joseph, but they knew he was the son of Mary? It could be. The second thing we note here is it's proof that Jesus had brothers and sisters, that Mary was not a perpetual version. If people want to question that, you can take them to this. And don't let them get by with, oh, that meant cousins. No, the word is Adelphos. It literally means first brother. Jesus was the first brother of the family. It's speaking of human brothers and sisters, even though they may be half brothers and sisters. And then notice what it says. And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. The word there for taking offense is uh, scandalizo, or comes from scandalon. It means made to stumble. Made to stumble. It also means trapped like game. And that's kind of an interesting thing when you put those two together to get the full feel of what this is talking about. They took offense at him. They were stumbling over Jesus. Why? Why were they stumbling over them, over him? Because of their familiarity with him. They knew this young guy growing up. And as I said, he probably, you know, didn't prove to be anything extraordinary growing up or they wouldn't have had that attitude. They just could not fathom that this young boy who had grown up in Nazareth could be something extraordinary. Do you remember in John, uh, John 1, 46, when Nathanael said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And that was the attitude they had about their own village. Nothing good can come out of here. And before we get too hard on them, let's kind of put ourselves in their place. You know, what would we be thinking? You know, in our society today, we, we sometimes have difficulty just believing in the hometown boy or girl making good and coming back home, don't we? Even in a worldly sense, we sometimes really struggle with that. I'll, I'll give you an example of that. Um, when I was a, had been an assistant coach for a few years and I was trying to get a head football job, one of the jobs that opened up was at my old high school. At my old high school. And they had fallen on pretty hard times. In fact, there's some people sitting in this room that went to school during that time and they know that They'd fallen on hard times in their football program. They weren't very good. And so there were three of us guys who had played, uh, I won't tell you what year it was, but it was the best team in the history of the school, the only undefeated team in the history of the school. Um, we played in a program that was far above most other programs in Orange County even at that time in the things that we did, and we were trained well. So three of us applied for the job, three guys that had all played together, and we would have been happy for any of us to get the job. 
I would have been happier if I had got the job. But we'd have been happy if any of us got the job. Well, as it turns out, um, I was the last one to interview, uh, and um, they hired someone else. And I asked the athletic director, I don't understand. You know, we had three of us applying for this job. Why would you go outside and hire somebody that hadn't been in the program? He said, you know, each one of you guys was unbelievable. You interviewed so well. You, you, you were so organized. You know, you were so impressive. And I'm looking at him going, well, then why didn't you hire any of us? And he goes, you know, uh, we just couldn't get the thought out of our head that you guys are still those young idiots that used to play for us. <laughs> uh, well, I get that. Have, have you ever gone back to a, to a high school reunion or a family reunion? And maybe in high school, you weren't a Christian. And you go back, and you're a different person, and people are looking at you like, yeah, right, okay, sure. And they're remembering back what you were. See, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to get that out of our mind. And obviously, that became a stumbling block for the people of Nazareth. Well, in verse 4, Jesus says, very similar to what he had said in the time before, he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among even his own relatives and in his own household. And there's a lot of truth to that. Notice, though, it's a little bit different than what he said in Luke because he said a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. In other words, he does have honor elsewhere. Um, now, I, I get to say this because Pastor Michael's not here, but, you know, I know you guys appreciate Pastor Michael, and you're an exception, but, you know, there are a lot of congregations that, you know, once they've heard all the pastor's jokes, once they've heard all his stories, you know, they kind of get a little bit like, yeah, yeah, he's okay. But, you know, somebody else invites that pastor to speak, and they go and speak, and they go, oh, man, you guys have the most unbelievable pastor, which we do here, by the way. It, you know, it's amazing. He's so good. And you're going, ah, yeah, yeah. You get what I'm saying? There's honor oftentimes elsewhere. Why? Because of the familiarity that we have. There's that old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And that can be true. Verse 5, and this is where it gets really critical, and we're going to take some time, verses 5 and 6 here. It says, and he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief and he was going around the villages teaching. That also tells us it was a different time from the year before, because the year before, they, they got rid of him. This time, he went around the villages teaching. Well, what does it say here? It says, look, he wondered or marveled or was amazed at their unbelief. Now, this is interesting. Do you know the only other time the Bible says Jesus marveled, the same word that was used here for marveled or amazed or wondered? There was only one other time. If you want to flip back to it, it's in Matthew chapter 8. Just a book back, Matthew 8, starting in verse 5. The only other time Jesus marveled at something. Matthew 8, verse 5, it says, And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come to him and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, 
Truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. He marveled at belief. And if you skip down to verse 13, it says, And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. But here in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus marvels at the very opposite. He marvels at their unbelief. The word unbelief there is apostia. Apostia, and it's really an A added to pistis, which means faith or belief. So it means literally without faith. They were without faith, without belief. So it tells us here in Nazareth that Jesus only did a few healings, and there were no mention of the large crowds that followed him in the other places that he was at. Remember, the crowds just kept pressing in on him, but you don't see that here in Nazareth. What a contrast to what had happened in Capernaum and even in the pagan land, the land of the Gerasenes. So why were there no other miracles? Well, turn back again to Matthew. It's only a little bit back. Matthew 13, verse 58. And Matthew 13 is the parallel account to what happened here in Mark. It's Matthew's account of it. So Matthew 13, 58, Matthew says, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So this unbelief that Jesus was marveling at was the reason that no more miracles took place. Now this statement brings up some difficulties when we compare it to Mark's account. If we look closely again in verse 5 of Mark, it says that he could not, could not do other miracles. But Matthew says, did not do, which makes it seem more like a choice, doesn't it? So which is it? Is it he did not do them or he could not do them? And then that brings another important question. If could not is the accurate term, then doesn't that mean that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, is not omnipotent? He is not all-powerful? And then wouldn't that make man more powerful than God if God can't do something based on man's unbelief? This is a huge theological question. And these are good questions for anyone to ask, and they deserve an answer. So call the Bible Answer Show and then we'll try to answer the question, all right? See you later. Oh, no. Okay, so I'm going to do my best then to go ahead and, and answer this question. But just remember this, as I explain it, if I confuse you, which I probably will do, then remember that God's ways are above our ways and above our complete understanding. But I think that we can get a good idea here. First, let me say this. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He can do anything he chooses to do, and that never changes, and nothing man ever does can change that. And I was disappointed as I was studying this because I read some commentators who were tremendous Bible teachers that said that his omnipotence was limited. That's a bad way of putting it, and I'm going to show you why. Now, here's a statement, and if you're a note-taker, or even if you're not, I, I would love for you to write this down. This is a statement you need to hear. God in his sovereignty 
God in his sovereignty, that means he reigns over everything, often chooses to partner with human faith in order to accomplish his will. I'm going to read that again slowly to you. Write it down if you would. But God in his sovereignty often chooses to partner with human faith in order to accomplish his will. Now, if you need proof of that, you can just go back in, in Mark again in the last couple of chapters and see what took place. Remember in Mark 5.22, uh, Jairus and his daughter. Mark 5.22 through 24, it says, One of the synagogue officials, Jairus, this is what we learned last week, came up and on seeing him, Jesus fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. The faith of Jairus. Mark 5, 27 through 29 says, And after hearing about Jesus, she, and this is the woman with the issue of blood, came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Both of these people were certain that not only could Jesus heal, but they seemed to be certain that he would heal. Look at what Jesus says to the woman in Mark 5, 34. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So there it is. It's faith and the power of God working together, partnering together to accomplish God's will. And you see this in numerous occasions in the New Testament. We just read about the faith of the centurion, right? But you know that there are also times that Jesus did miracles without involving a person's belief or faith, and this is important to know. The blind man in John chapter 9, he wasn't even asking for a healing when Jesus healed him. Later on, after the man had been put out of the synagogue, Jesus went and found him. And I want you to listen closely to the exchange. You don't have to turn there, but just listen closely here. It's in John uh, 9, 35 through 39. John 9, 35 through 39, if you want to write it down. This is what happened. He, Jesus, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And his response, it says, and he worshiped him. So here was a guy, he didn't ask for healing, but Jesus healed him. He hadn't had any belief at all. He tells us that. He didn't really even know who it was that had done it. But when Jesus told him it was him, and that he was the Lord, the man believed in him after the healing had taken place. So we see that having faith that God will heal or do a miracle is not always a requirement for it to happen. Or even just faith that he can do a miracle is not always required. What does that mean? It's his choice when and where he desires to use our faith to accomplish his purpose. He is omnipotent. So why then does Mark say that he could not when Matthew just says he did not? Well, they're, they're really ex expressing the same idea. It seems that God in his sovereignty 
in his perfect sovereignty and in his omnipotence, made a choice. And that choice was that when, he, when Jesus was going to go to Nazareth, God was only going to do miracles amongst those who believed. That was God's choice in how he was going to work and partner with faith in this situation. Therefore, their unbelief kept Jesus from doing any more miracles. And it, it may have partially been de demonstrated not only in the fact of the things that they had said about him, but also in the fact there were no crowds around him. You know, how was Jesus going to heal a bunch of people if nobody came to him? He would have had to go house to house. So their unbelief, their unbelief kept him from doing many miracles. Now, I want to clarify something here, and this is really important in this particular case. It is not that they didn't believe that Jesus could do miracles. Remember, they were already saying, where did he get the power to do those miracles? They knew he'd done them. They believed he could do them. They said so in verse 2. So what was their unbelief? Their unbelief was that they did not accept and receive and trust and believe in Jesus as the Messiah that he had claimed to be. That was their unbelief. Remember, in his first visit, he had told them who he was. And what did they do? They tried to kill him. It was the lack of faith in Jesus as Messiah that hinders God's work in this particular case. And this is a really important truth today because... A lot of people teach today that the only reason someone is, is not healed is because, well, you just don't have enough faith that you can be healed, or you know, you're just not believing for your healing. Have you heard that before? Oh, you're healed, but you're not believing for your healing. Therefore, you don't see the manifestation of it. They kind of treat faith as if it's the force. In fact, they actually do teach that it's a force. A lot of the teaching is it's this force that has to be released. As if in, if you just believe hard enough, whatever you wish, whatever you want, is going to come true. That's wrong. And you know what it does? It puts man in charge instead of God being in charge. I have a newsflash for you. If you want something to happen, and it's not in God's will, it's not going to happen. I don't care how hard you try. I don't care how many wrinkles you put in your forehead. It's not going to happen. You see, it's a misunderstanding of faith. Faith, by definition, must have an object. And faith's object is not faith. Faith's object is Jesus Christ. And, you know, in fact, when we say things, and I, I don't mean to put anybody down by this because we all say this at times, but when we say something like, you know, my faith got me through this situation, you hear that said all the time. It's usually by people who are talking to a reporter, you know, and they, they kind of just, they don't want to really say what they really mean. So they, my faith got me through this situation. But you know what we really should say? Well, we really should say, I put my faith in Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, I put my trust in him completely, and Jesus is the one who got me through the situation. Amen? Amen. Not my faith in faith. Jesus got me through this situation. Do you see the difference? Yeah. So you see that in no way can unbelief limit God's omnipotence, but God can choose not to work when there is unbelief. Let me ask you a question here. Does the, does the sun shine every day? 
In fact, when you came in this morning, and it may still be, I don't know, no, I don't think there is. You know, you came in this morning, you walked in, and a lot of you say, oh, gee, the sun isn't shining. Is that true? No, that's not true. The sun is shining, isn't it? Just get in a jet plane, fly up above the clouds, and you'll see it's still there. It's still shining. But what's happening? Well, the clouds are blocking all the light from getting down to us. Unbelief is sort of like those clouds. You know, God may choose just, you know, to let that unbelief cover up for a while that we don't get to see necessarily his working. But guess what? He's still there. He's still omnipotent. He's got all power up there. But our unbelief sometimes is clouding what's taking place. So hopefully I didn't confuse you too much. Hopefully we have an understanding of this. So then... What's the application for us here? Well, I think it's pretty clear. God often desires to partner with us and use our faith to accomplish his work. He wants to use our faith to do great and mighty things. But the question is for us, are we open to that? Do we always desire to partner with him in faith? Look at what John 14 says. John 14, 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. He? Who's he? That's you. That's me. And greater works than these, meaning greater in number, greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, meaning in my will, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What a promise that Jesus has given to us. You know, um, as I'm teaching the Firm Foundation class and we go through the spiritual gifts, the question comes up a lot when we, when we get into the gifts of healing and gifts of miracles. Those are gifts, by the way, given to us by the Holy Spirit to be operating in the church today. And so the question comes up a lot why don't we see more of that today? And I could go on for a long time with many different answers to that, I think. But I do think we need to understand that there is a great possibility that times that God may be calling us to do something, our lack of faith hinders that work. It's not because God couldn't do it another way. He can do it any way he wants to. But he may choose to use your faith to do something, but your faith is not there at that time. And I think we need to be more open to God wanting to partner with us and use our faith and watch what he does. We have a group of people that comes in here uh, once a month on a Friday night for our NUMA service. And I tell you what, this is a group of people that come every time they come, they come expecting God to do something. Something that we don't even know what it's going to be. And every time God does something that we can't say we could have planned that happened. We need to be open. Let me give you just a personal example I shared this in my class, so some of you heard this. Um, but you're going to hear it again anyway. I was at a men's retreat, and I wasn't an elder of the church. I wasn't a pastor of the church at the time. I was coaching football, and it was the church I was going to. I was involved in a lot of areas of ministry. So we were at this men's retreat, and we had just gotten there. We had barely gotten there. And uh, three guys uh, brought another brother up to me, and they said, we want you to pray for this man because on the way up here he got really sick and he's asking us to take him home 
So would you pray for his healing? I'm like, well, sure, absolutely, I'll pray for his healing. So I had another brother with me at the time, and we laid hands, and we all laid hands, and we began praying. And as we began praying, the Lord started speaking to me, and I wish he wouldn't do that sometimes in this situation. Um, and, he st- and he told me, I want you to tell this man to go into his room, to go to sleep for the night, and when he wakes up in the morning, he'll be completely healed, and he's going to stay at this retreat. So I'm, I'm kind of still, words are coming out of my mouth. They aren't those words. And I'm still arguing with God. And I'm going, but God, if I tell him that and he gets up in the morning and he's still sick, they're going to stone me. I'm never going to make it home from this retreat. So I'm praying and I'm arguing with God. And finally I give in and I go, okay, God, I trust you. And with fear and trepidation, I said to the man, God is telling me to tell you this. That way I could blame him if it didn't happen. He's telling me to tell you that you're to go home or go to your room now. Don't stay up the rest of the night. Just go to sleep. And when you wake up in the morning, you're going to be healed. You're going to feel great. And you're going to stay at this retreat because God wants you here at this retreat. And he kind of looked at me and looked around and he said very sheepishly, okay. And so he did. So he went home. He went to bed. Got up the next morning, saw him in the dining room. He was eating like crazy, but I was a mess because all night long, I'm up praying all night long, sweating bullets going, God, you better come through. If you don't come through, I'm in deep trouble here. And I couldn't sleep all night. Me of great faith, right? So he had a great night's sleep. I had no sleep, but it was still a great retreat. So, you know, what I would really consider in a small way, God allowed me to partner because of faith. He allowed me to partner in that way. Even though my faith was as small as that little mustard seed, it wasn't great faith, I did trust that he would do something. Faith and power working together. Well, as we continue on in the chapter, we're going to see more of faith and power working together here. Uh, in this next section here. And what this is, is Jesus, he's going to send these disciples. These guys have been following him around all this time, watching him do all of these things, and now he is going to send them out on a short-term mission trip just in the same way that our folks are down in Mexico right now. So verse 7 says, And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Now, all this just means it's trying to explain to you this is going to be a short-term trip. That's why all of these details are in here to let you know. He's just saying, you're not going to be long, so don't take a bunch of stuff. And I want you to rely on my provision for you and for the people that, in the homes that you're going to stay in. You go in a home, just stay there, um, and whenever it's time for you to go, you go ahead and go. But he says that any place that doesn't listen to you then I want you to go shake the dust off your feet. Leave them. That was a sign. What, what the Jews used to do is when they left a Gentile city, remember they had gone through an unclean city, so they would shake the dust off their feet and go, okay, I'm not taking any of this with me. And that's kind of what they would, would be saying to them. I'm not taking any of you with me. I'm, I'm shaking you off. You didn't listen to what I had to say. 
And so it says, they went out and preached that men should repent. In verse 13, and they were casting out demons, many demons, and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So it says Jesus began to send. He started, in other words, this is the beginning of his sending them out. He was going to do it other times. The word send in Greek is apostello. So you obviously know that's where we get the word apostle from, right? That's what apostle means. It means sent out on a mission, commissioned by Jesus himself in this case. That's what that word apostle means. He does the same thing for us. He sends us out. Now, he may not send you out into all the world, like he does some people, but he's sending you out to your job every day. He's sending you to school every day. You are an apostle in that sense, not in the sense that you were personally with Jesus during the time he was here, but in that sense, you are a sent one because we are called to do the work of God. He has called us, and guess what? When he calls us to do something, he equips us just like it says that he was going to do here. Notice what it says in verse 7. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He knew what they were going to be faced with, so he gave them an equipping to handle what they were going to be faced with. And God does that for you and I as well. Do you know that God will never ask you to do anything that he will not equip you to do by the power of the Holy Spirit? Not in your flesh. But he's given you the Holy Spirit. And when he gives you a mission, he is going to equip you to fulfill that mission. Now, I know that some of you, you find that hard to believe. Me? Oh, come on. God can't do that. And I want to encourage you. Trust God. Believe in him. Partner in faith with him. Jesus sent these guys out with a particular message, and he anointed them with the power to authenticate that message. That's why the healings and the casting out of demons took place. That may not be what Jesus is going to do for you or me. He may equip us a different way. Now, certainly, when you think about it, they must have had faith when they went out there and did it, right? I mean, if they didn't have faith that Jesus really had equipped them, do you think they would have followed those orders? They would have been scared to death to go out and do that. And remember, these guys were not known for their tremendous amount of faith. Did you, did you realize that? You know, at this point in time, it wasn't like they were superhuman in their faith. In fact, they may have had less faith than you and I do even right now. But the little faith they did have, they went and followed his orders. They obeyed. They did what he told them to do. Verse 13 tells us that their faith, their faith in Christ and God's power once again worked together to accomplish God's purposes. Many sick people were healed. Many demons were cast out. And more importantly, the message of the gospel went out. So I want to ask you today, what's Jesus calling you to do? Is there something that you know God has put on your heart to do, but you just haven't done it yet? Do you fear that you're not properly equipped? Are you afraid that I'm going to fail at this, so I just don't want to try? You know, you wouldn't be the first one to think that. If you think back, you know, one of the first superheroes of the Bible, Moses, you know, he argued and argued with God when God wanted to send him to Egypt. You know, he had all the excuses in the world, but God promised him that he would equip Moses to do the job he was giving Moses to do. God would demonstrate his mighty power through Moses. So Moses had to believe and partner in faith with God.
And of course, we know how that turned out. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Remember, it's not a matter of, I believe harder. It's a matter to me, I use the term all the time, it, to me it's a matter of mustard seed faith. It's that little bit of faith, but we act upon that little bit of faith that we have. And we follow Jesus' order and we believe that he will equip us to do whatever it is that he's called us to do. Now as we begin to close today, I think it's important for us to look at the message that the apostles preached. Look at verse 12. What they preached <clears throat> is that men should repent. In Matthew, it says they preached the kingdom of God and that men should repent. That's the very same message that John the Baptist, who, by the way, by this time was now in prison, but it's the very same message that he was preaching and baptizing people for. That message of repentance, telling people that you need to turn away from your sin and turn toward God. That's what repentance means. Now, why did he not send him out with the message that we often hear today? Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, that is true. I'm not saying that's not true. But this is really important, brothers and sisters. I think that too often in trying hard to reach people for Christ, we choose that to speak of. We speak of his love which we should. But you know, in today's culture, you have to be careful because that word love today often gets confused with tolerance for sin. Amen? We say things a lot, like don't worry about cleaning yourself up before you come to him. He will do that after you receive him. And you know, that's a true statement. It's true, but guess what? We have to first understand and we have to admit that we need to be cleaned up. You know, we sometimes portray Jesus as more of a self-help guru than King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is not the gospel. The message of repentance and, and the baptism of John was to do something in particular. It was to help prepare people for the way of the Lord. Remember what John said? A voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And so he said, repent. And they came to him and they were baptized and they were preparing their hearts for what Jesus was going to tell them they needed to do, which was receive him as Lord and Savior. When we come to Christ, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Pastor Michael on Wednesday night reminded us once again that we need to know what we're being saved from. And what we're being saved from is the wrath of God, which is the just penalty for our sin. Romans 1 and 2 teaches us that those who knew God but did not honor him as God became fools. And because of this, God gave them over to degrading passions. That's in Romans 1.26. And then in Romans 1.28, it says, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so he gave them over to a depraved mind. He gave them over to a depraved mind. In chapter 2, verse 5 of Romans, Paul says this. Listen closely. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God 
who will render to each person according to his deeds. He's saying this to people who have chosen to sin and chosen not to acknowledge God for who he is. And he says, you're storing up wrath for yourself. You see, repentance prepares our heart to receive Jesus truly as Savior and Lord. When we believe in Christ, we don't just believe that he exists. It means that we're going to put our trust in him to save us from that wrath that we deserve. And it also means that we're turning from our wicked ways, our fleshly ways, and now we have a desire to live a godly life because he is our Lord and he is our master. That's what Lord means. You see, this is what the people of Nazareth couldn't do. This is what they were not willing to accept. They would not believe. And they would not put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Messiah. And you know what's interesting? This was probably their last chance. Did you know that Jesus never again returned to Nazareth? Just as he had told his disciples to shake the dust off their feet when people didn't receive him, it seems as though Jesus shook the dust off his feet when he left Nazareth. Wow, that's sobering. Does that mean that there is a point where after so much rejection, Jesus stops pursuing a person? That may seem scary to you, but I believe the answer is yes. We don't know when that is. We as human beings don't know what that is, so we never give up. We continue to pray for people. But in Genesis 6, 3, it says this. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Romans 1 and 2 show us that at a certain point, God gives people over to the lusts of their flesh. Only he knows that they're not ever going to accept him, not us. Remember that Pharaoh, when he first started, it says he hardened his heart, but after a while, what happened? God hardened his heart for him because he had made his choice. For him, there was no turning back. And I just want to say, if there's anyone in here this morning that this is the first time, or maybe more than one time that you've heard the gospel message, don't be that person. Don't count on the fact that you'll get another chance. Don't harden your heart like the people of Nazareth did. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, understand this, you are a sinner in need of a Savior. You need to turn away from your sin. You need to turn away from controlling your own life. And you need to turn your life over to God and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, tremendous, tremendous passage of Scripture. Lord, you teach us so much during uh, these times that we spend in your word. And Lord, you also, besides teaching us who you are, teaching us how much you love us, Lord, you teach us that you are a holy God and that we need to come to you in repentance and Lord, that we need to make a decision to follow you, to give up of control of our own self and to give it over to you. And, and so Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here this morning, Lord, that that would be the choice that they make today. And if that's you this morning, I'm just going to ask uh, that you would just take a moment to quietly speak to the Lord. And it can be something like this. I'll just lead you, but you don't have to have perfect words. You just need to have an open heart. 
But it's something like this. God, I understand today that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And I realize now that you sent Jesus, your son, to die on a cross to save me from that sin. And today, God, I want to receive and accept the gift of grace that you have given to me. And I want to receive you, Jesus, into my life and into my heart. And my desire, Lord, is to turn away from my former ways and to follow you all the days of my life. So thank you, Lord, for anyone that you're speaking to in that way this morning. But Lord, I pray also that you would imprint on all of our hearts, all of those of us who are believers, Lord, that we are just to allow you to work in us the way you choose to work in us, Lord, and that, that God, we would partner with you in faith, that we would know when you want to do something and we wouldn't shy away from it, Lord, but that we would receive in faith the equipping that you give us to do whatever it is that you want to do. And Lord, that we would just be obedient like the disciples were in this case we read about. And we would just do whatever it is that you want us and call us to do, God. I thank you for each one that's here this morning, God. Thank you for all that you're doing in their lives. And Lord, all of it is about giving you praise and glory. And so, Lord, just fill our hearts as we sing this closing song to you today. And we praise your name. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?